The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our text for this morning's message is Psalm chapter 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. We're continuing our summer sermon series in the Psalms. So last week we kicked off in Psalm 24, and this week I have the privilege of preaching Psalm 25. My name is Ted, and I serve as the deacon of pastoral care here at Coram Deo. And in my role, I take very seriously the call to care well for others. Sometimes this entails counseling-type work. Sometimes it entails comforting those who are in hardship or grief. And in all of this work, it's very life-giving for me, and it's a joy to come alongside others and walk with others wherever they find themselves. But here's what I'm learning about myself in that work. While I'm seeking to minister to others in light of their circumstances, I'm continually reminded of my own need. I'm reminded of my own need for personal communion with the Lord as the starting point for both my life and ministry. And that reminder has become increasingly clear recently because, quite frankly, life has brought a lot of trouble. 
Over the last handful of years, my wife and I have experienced three miscarriages, cancer taking my dad's life a year ago, my mother-in-law battling cancer of her own, our brother-in-law's lymphoma diagnosis, and some new challenges in parenting, challenges that have felt spiritually dark and oppressive that have seemingly brought us to the end of ourselves. In a lot of ways for our family, it has felt like the hits just keep coming and has left us wondering, what's next? As these things have happened, it's kind of felt like a blur, and I've just kind of pushed forward with the mentality that I have to keep going. But a few months ago, grief started hitting me in a new way. I was able to reflect more and be honest with myself. And while sitting with a friend a few months ago, all I could really say was, I'm not doing okay. But I know I'm not alone in that. So what about you? What is troubling you right now? Life is full of troubles, isn't it? And as I think about trouble, I think our trouble generally falls into two main categories. One category is the trouble within. This is our own sin. We're asking questions such as, how do I change? How do I deal with the reality that when I desire to do what's right, I just don't have the ability to carry it out? The second category is the trouble outside of us. These are the things happening around us or the things coming at us. This is suffering. Some of us are deeply troubled by political unrest. We are troubled by the continued cultural shift opposed to a biblical worldview. Some of us are troubled by the grief and pain of loss. These things are outside of our control. To say it another way, we are sinners and we are sufferers. We are troubled by sin, and we are troubled by suffering. And when we experience trouble, we sometimes wonder whether it's worth it to trust God. Maybe those who question you or those who think you're foolish for trusting in the Lord, maybe they're actually right. Maybe you shouldn't follow the Lord because he didn't come through for you when it counted. Maybe he's not going to come through for you now. And maybe, just maybe, you could have been living a different life all along. Do you ever find yourself thinking thoughts like this? Psalm 25 is a psalm for those who experience trouble. And Psalm 25 shows us how to walk with God when trouble comes our way. It not only shows us that trouble should be expected, trouble will, in fact, come, but it serves as a companion or a guide to use as we navigate the troubles of this life. Now, one of the most important things to understand about Psalm 25 is that its structure matters for us. This isn't immediately obvious in our English translation, but if you have a good study Bible, it probably mentions this. Psalm 25 is a Hebrew acrostic, meaning that it takes the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and successively, alphabet successively, and each verse starts with a new letter. This kind of thing reminds me of teaching children. My wife likes to use song to teach our kids catechisms and 
truths about God. It's also been a helpful device for teaching them about things like history and math facts. It's an easy way to teach, and what better way to remember than through song? In the same way, the writers of the Psalms would sometimes use devices to assist their listeners with remembering what it is that they're teaching. And so, in using this acrostic form, the writer wanted Psalm 25 to be remembered. He wanted Psalm 25 to easily come to mind. Here are three things I think the psalm wants us to remember in our troubles. Number one, in our trouble, we need to walk in the ways of the Lord. Two, in our trouble, we need the friendship of the Lord. And three, in our trouble, we need the hope of the Lord. Let's look at this prayer together, beginning with Psalm 25, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be, be, they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. There is very clearly trouble at hand. The concern here, what the psalmist is pleading with the Lord for, is that he not be put to shame. We see this concern again in his final plea in verse 20, where the psalmist clearly pleads, let me not be put to shame. Here's the question this morning. If you trust in God, will you be put to shame? If you trust God, will you be put to shame? Isn't that one of the things we fear? That at the end of the day, our enemies are right. God doesn't really exist and we're foolish to trust in him. Religion is just wishful thinking. And if that's true, then we'd be ashamed. How dumb and foolish and embarrassing to believe in a God who isn't actually real. That's one of the things we fear deep down in the midst of our troubles. In thinking about shame, listen to how Pastor John Tyson describes the pressure our social environment exerts on us. He says, we instinctively look to a peer reference group to disciple us and instruct us on how to be acceptable in each setting. These groups become our relational and behavioral dashboards, letting us know where we fit in and what we need to change to receive approval and acceptance. How do I fit in? How do I live? What's valued here? We read, adjust, and conform. These external forces can exert tremendous pressure on how we act. You have people in your life who think you're crazy for trusting in the Lord. What if they're right? 
The pressure from the culture around us, the influence of our peers and friends, these forces exert pressure on how we act. And when we listen to these voices, we're prone to doubt whether God's ways are actually good, whether obedience to God really is the path forward. But notice the language of verses four and five. Verse four, we see, make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. I want to draw your attention to two things we see here. Number one, notice the plea for help. The way we live is so much easier when others agree with us, but these verbs suggest more than conceptual agreement and understanding. They suggest more than our own knowledge or intellect. What we see here is make me, teach me, lead me. There is a pleading, acknowledging that we need God to reach us and to lead us and to show us his ways. Number two, notice that in trouble, the psalmist isn't just asking for comfort and empathy. Oh, he desires relief, but his aim is altogether different than that. What he ultimately wants is to know God's ways, and he wants to walk in his paths. Disappointing circumstances will come and go. Painful realities of life will grieve us. These things are real. These are painful. These are disappointing. But these are subjective. The ways of the Lord, on the other hand, are a comfort. His ways are a comfort because they are objective. There is no disappointment here. With our second child, my wife was at about 27 weeks of pregnancy, and what was expected to be a routine checkup turned into a phone call. I was home with our one-year-old son at the time. I answered the phone, and it was my wife letting me know that she was being admitted immediately into the hospital. I got to the hospital as fast as I could, and there was a lot of unknown as the doctors started to explain more. They started to express concerns about her having seizures. And then they started expressing concerns of a stroke. I was brought face to face with the reality in that moment that our lives could change in a moment's notice. They explained that the only cure was to deliver the baby, and so it became this balancing act of keeping the baby in the womb as long as they possibly could without risking her health any further. Things were uncertain in that moment, and as I returned home that night to be with our one-year-old son, and she was still in the hospital, I started to journal and to pray to the Lord. And in that quiet moment on the couch in my living room, I vividly remember feeling so much fear in the unknown. And yet, I remember feeling such a deep sense of trust and comfort in who the Lord is. 
You see, the knowledge that we had good doctors and good medical care was good to know. The knowledge that the doctors felt okay about the fact that our baby was close to 28 weeks was a relief. But that type of confidence could only go so far. I had to know that the Lord was sovereign in that moment. I had to know that the Lord was with us in that moment. We had nothing else, and it was a comfort. Listen, trouble isn't the time to try to find a different path. We are limited in our understanding and acknowledging our neediness is exactly where we're called to be. Look with me at verse 9. Psalm 25, verse 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Humility is about acknowledging our need, but our human tendency is to deny our need, isn't it? We want to think we're fine. We want to think we've got this. And out of our pride and insecurity, we boast in our own wisdom and our own knowledge. We depend on our gifts and on our competence. We want to be seen as adequate. But what we see here in verse 9 is quite the opposite. What we see is the path forward is one of humility. This is an emptying of ourselves. We are brought low by the circumstances of life. We acknowledge that our own ways are limited at best. And so we can't accomplish our way out of this. We can't earn our way out of this. We can't think our way out of this. We're not going to be okay because we live in the right part of town or we make the right amount of money or because we're in good health. But to trust in the Lord with all your heart is to rest in the promise that he gives grace to the humble. So the path forward is one of humility. We acknowledge that we've got nothing else. In our trouble, we need to walk in the ways of the Lord. Second, in our trouble, we need to know the friendship of the Lord. Look with me at verses 8 through 14. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. Verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. I'm reminded of a friend who lost his firstborn child just a few days after birth. Sadly, an experience some in this room have had to endure. The pain and burden is sometimes too much to bear. His response to that experience was 
to take control of his own life. He said, I realized during that time that if God could take something like that from me, something so dear and something so meaningful, then I could no longer yield control of my life to him. Or another friend who in his back and forth struggle with addiction has started to question if God is with him at all. Isn't it true that in the midst of our troubles, we believe that the Lord doesn't hear us? We start to think that God is too distant or removed from us. We have screwed it up for too much, for too long, and he's no longer going to be patient with us. His friendship is the very thing we're prone to doubt. Hear me say this. That kind of thinking is an evil lie. And it only leads to despair and it cripples our faith. But don't miss this beautiful reminder and this invitation we have in Psalm 25. Listen again to Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 8 is speaking to you and I. He instructs sinners in the way. That's us. He instructs us. He is with us. How gracious. There's a saying from Pastor Jack Miller that goes like this. He says, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. The Lord is so good and gracious that he sees us in the midst of our pain. He loves us in the midst of our sin. And when we look to him, the promise is that he will guide us. He doesn't turn away in embarrassment. He doesn't turn away in impatience or powerlessness as we so often do. In fact, he has turned toward us. Look with me again at the promise of verse 14. Verse 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. God doesn't just offer you his help. He offers you his friendship. This friendship we see and we experience through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards says this of Jesus' incarnation. He has come down from heaven and has taken upon him the human nature and purpose, that he might be near to you and might be, as it were, your companion. Friendship is about both parties moving toward each other. And make no mistake, Jesus has done everything in moving toward us. He left his heavenly glory. He took on human flesh. He humbled himself to the point of death. He has come near to us so that he might be our companion. Trouble is at hand. Opposition is all around us. We are anxious. We are insecure. We are lonely. We are hurting. We are disappointed again and again and again. 
your coworkers, your neighbors, the culture all around you says, you are a fool. And yet, in the midst of trouble, we have the friendship of the Lord. Theologian Richard Sibbs puts it this way. If other friends fail as friends may fail, yet this friend will never fail us. If we be not ashamed of him, he will never be ashamed of us. How comfortable would our life be if we could draw out the comfort that this title of friend affords? It is a comfortable, a fruitful, and eternal friendship. As you and I face disappointment all around us, some might listen, some might care. Those who do, it's a grace from God, though it's inadequate. But this promise, the promise of friendship with the Lord, the thing you can be sure of is he gets it. You can look to him, you can look to the Lord, and you can say, you too. In a world marked by increased isolation and loneliness in Christ, we're never alone. The sorrow that feels so isolating was endured by him, and it is now shouldered by him. In our trouble, we need to know the friendship of the Lord. Finally, in our trouble, we need the hope of the Lord. Look with me again at verses 16 through 19. Psalm 25, 16 says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Lonely and afflicted. It's not getting any better. How lonely is it when you lose your job and everyone around you seems to be experiencing blessing? How lonely is it when you can't have a child and yet families are growing all around you? How lonely is it when a loved one passes away and the world just seems to move on? How lonely is it when you are isolated in the shame and guilt of your sin and it feels like you can't tell anyone. No one seems to understand. No one sees me. I'm alone. To say discouraging doesn't even begin to describe that place. What does hope even look like in times like this? In Psalm 25, we don't even see a promise of relief. Trouble is all around. There's trouble inside. There's trouble outside. He is sinful. He is lonely. He is afflicted. He is hated. You and I find ourselves in that place sometimes, don't we? We're seeking the ways of the Lord. We're acknowledging the Lord's sovereignty in our lives. We're confessing sin. We're pursuing change. And yet, life's disappointment is relentless. And in trouble, 
we're prone to lose hope. We're left asking, will I always be in the same place that I'm at right now? Will this financial burden ever ease? Will there ever be any fruit from the exhausting efforts of my parenting? Will I ever get married? Will the Lord ever provide me with a child? Will the chronic physical pain I experience ever go away? Will the sting of the loss of a loved one ever dissipate? Maybe. But the hard reality of life in a broken world is maybe not. Maybe not. So we're left asking deeper spiritual questions like, is my hope in the Lord actually crazy? What if all of this is for nothing? What if those opposed to me are actually right? If you find yourself in that place, you're not alone. You're not alone. But notice that the language of the psalm here is vertical in nature. What I mean by that is the psalmist knows that his troubles can't ultimately be dealt with by those around him, but he cries out to the Lord. He expresses his doubts and longings and confusion to the Lord. Yes, we need each other, but the invitation this morning is to cry out to the Lord in the midst of our trouble. And then we see his final plea, verses 20 through 21. He says, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Our circumstances may never change in this life. We may never be relieved of our trouble, and oftentimes, the picture is bleak. But the only objective reality we have in this life is who the Lord is. His ways are good. His friendship is for those who fear him. The Lord knows us in the midst of our trouble in a way no one else does. He knows us and understands us in a way where he, the Lord, can say to us, me too. Me too. In our trouble, we need the hope of the Lord. And that hope is not in our circumstances, but it's in God's character and in his promises. In thinking of the Lord's deliverance, I'm drawn to the fulfilled promise we see in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our hope in the Lord is not crazy. You may be familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom. The Ten Boom family, who was part of the Dutch Reformed Church, had their faith tested like none other during the Nazi occupation of Holland in World War II. They opened their home to anyone in need of food or assistance. They took in Jews, hiding them in their home. They were eventually caught and arrested. Corey's father, Casper, became sick and died after 10 days in prison. 
and her sister Betsy later passed away from malnutrition in the concentration camp. Corey survived this whole ordeal and was released from the concentration camp due to a clerical error. Later in life, she described a flashback of that horrible place, saying this. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights and the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past the guards. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. And having experienced the shame and horrors of Nazi Germany, Corey Ten Boom had this to say. Jesus did not promise to change the circumstances around us. He promised great peace and pure joy to those who would learn to believe that God actually controls all things. These are the words of someone who trusted and hoped because she knew that the horrendous circumstances of life in a concentration camp would one day be former things. She knew one day that she would be relieved of the hurt and the pain and the trauma and she would be filled with eternal joy. We are sinners and we are sufferers. But that won't always be the case. One day we will experience full redemption. Suffering, death, and sin will no longer permeate our day-to-day lives. We will worship God in glorious freedom as his sons and daughters before his throne in the new heavens and the new earth. This is our destiny as believers in Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the destiny we invite you to embrace. Jesus Christ went before us in his suffering. We're not alone in our trouble. The invitation for you this morning is simply to trust him. Those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. The promise of deliverance is one of full acceptance and communion with the Lord. Free of all sin and free of all suffering. Let's worship our God because his promise is sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we worship you this morning because of your grace toward us. We're reminded this morning that in all humility, you you left your heavenly glory and you moved toward us in human flesh. You lived the perfect life and you suffered in our place. And because of that, the good news is that you not only share with us in our trouble, but you promise to one day redeem us and to restore us from all of our sin and from all of our suffering. Help us in all of our weakness and in all of our neediness. Help us to cling to that promise. May that truth bring about great hope and great joy in our lives. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.